Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Daniel Gerald, and I'm a clinical pharmacist at Banner University Medical Center, Tucson, and I work in the emergency department. I'm also the PGY2 Emergency Medicine Program Director there. Today, I'll be your host for this ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast, and with me today are two guests. The first is Emily Kilber. Hi, I'm Emily Kilber. I am also an emergency medicine pharmacist, and I work at Valleywise Health Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And I actually did my PGY2 with Dan down in Tucson. Thanks, Emily. And our second guest is Spencer Krugel. Hi, my name is Spencer Krugel. I'm the current PGY2 emergency medicine resident at Valley West Health Medical Center I'm with Emily and Amy. And I did my PGY1 in Chicago at Mount Sinai Hospital and then matched out here. Great. Well, I'm glad you both are here today. We're going to get started talking about today's topic, which is rapid sequence intubation and management of the recently intubated patient. So we're going to dive right into the first question, which is going to be a more general role of the emergency medicine pharmacist in these areas. And Emily and Spencer, how are you guys utilizing yourselves in your own institution? And is there any evidence to support pharmacists doing this in general? Yeah, of course. So I think um, it's important to kind of talk about the evidence that exists supporting the presence of pharmacists at rapid sequence intubations in the emergency department. There's plenty of evidence that suggests that pharmacist presence at these procedures increases analgesic use after RSI in the emergency department. Their presence also results in decreased time to post-intubation sedation and analgesia in trauma patients. And there's also evidence that suggests that pharmacy-led education leads to less delays in sedation. As far as our experience here, I'll let Spencer kind of start that topic off. Yeah. So I guess our personal experience here um, at Valley West Health, I think we're looked upon as obviously the physicians and nurses are plenty busy during this urgent situation. Physicians are preparing for the procedure. Nurses are putting lines in, placing the patient on a monitor. And it's kind of left with us to evaluate the patient right away um, to identify the appropriate RSI agents, so the induction agent and paralytic, the dosing of the agent, and then any adjunctive agents, say if the patient is hypotensive, if they're bradycardic, that may require either the, a dose of atropine or some push dose pressors to prepare them for the intubation. And I think we play a big role and we're kind of looked at uh, upon to start that discussion early on into the process as the patient or as the providers are preparing for the intubation. So bringing the medication dosing and choice up to the provider as soon as we decide to intubate, get their thoughts, answer any questions, and have a clinical discussion to see if any changes need to be made to the regimen. And I think even more importantly, having an early discussion on the post-intubation sedation part after the procedure is also very important. And I think we're all big on having that conversation very early. So we can, after the initial drugs are administered, we can already start start to set up that post-intubation sedation and analgesia. So that's ready immediately after the intubation is complete. Yeah, definitely. And then Spencer and I, as well as Amy, our other pharmacist here, um, we're involved in education of our medical residents and the rest of the staff here in terms of agents of choice, contraindications to different medications, dosing of those medications, and any other caveats to the medications chosen for intubation. We lead discussions during our conference sessions with our residents, our medical residents, 
we have these conversations at the bedside, and then sometimes we have in-services with our uh, teams as well here in the emergency department. Yeah, so it sounds like you guys are involved in a lot at your institution with regards to RSI and these patients who just recently got intubated. I think the pharmacist can play a lot of different roles here. And Emily, I know you spent some time at our institution as well, and we, we tend to do a lot of the same things that you guys do. I think some of the things that our listeners might need to be aware of is it really just depends what your environment is like, what kind of EM pharmacy service you can provide, then that'll pretty much determine what you're going to be able to do with regards to this. So for example, if you have 24-hour pharmacy coverage in the ED, you're probably going to be able to be at every single intubation, and you can really just take that on and put a lot of that on your own shoulders. But at my institution, we're only there 10, 12 hours a day. So we're doing a lot of education as well in the moment so that our nurses and our providers can execute well when we're not there. Also, we don't want that level of service for the patient to drop significantly when we aren't there. And I think you guys are in a similar boat there at ValleyWise. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have 24-hour coverage. I think we have similar coverage to you, just 10 hours a day, seven days a week. But yeah, I agree. I think a lot of the important impacts that we have are uh, related to the education that we provide to the team here. All right. So we're going to move on to the next question. And I'm curious, what are the common practices for you guys with rapid sequence intubation at your institution? And I think just culturally, you're going to see significant differences at each institution across the board. Yeah. As far as common practices here at our institution, I would say that the most frequent request we get is, can you pull up 20 Vitamidate and 100 Rock for me, please? And while that is, might be appropriate for some patients, we try to have that conversation of individualizing medication therapy and RSI medications um, with the provider. Maybe our patient is much larger than an appropriate 20 milligram Atomidate dose. So a, a normal Atomidate dose would be about 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. So if the patient is any more than about 70 kilos, that's not going to be the best dose for our patients. So we try to have that conversation with the providers in determining an appropriate induction dose of Atomidate and then an appropriate choice of paralytic as well as the dose of paralytic. And whether that's succinylcholine or rocuronium, those would be the two most common paralytics that we use. But I would say our providers reach to rocuronium a lot more frequently than succinylcholine. As far as Choosing between induction agents, recently some evidence came out that suggests that Atomidate, ketamine, and propofol all had similar hemodynamic effects in trauma patients requiring intubation. So as far as choosing induction agents for trauma patients, most commonly, like I said, we choose Atomidate, but it's nice to know that the evidence suggests that Atomidate does not change any hemodynamic effects, as sometimes I think that some providers may be under the impression that Atomidate decreases blood pressure. Um, so that's always nice to have that evidence to support the agents that we choose. Yeah, just to comment on the hemodynamic effects, definitely agree with the publication that you're referencing, that it's going to be similar across the board here. A common education piece that I need to give to the providers in my residents that I'm teaching as well is just because a medication might be hemodynamically neutral or have you know, relatively few hemodynamic effects, the patient is going to play a significant role in what you see. And all of these agents can cause hypotension, but in general, you're going to see similar responses across the board. Um, and that just kind of depends on the clinical situation that the patient's experiencing. 
Yeah, definitely. I specifically remember actually you teaching me about ketamine and the catecholamine depleted patient. So that comes up a lot as well, where our providers are like, well, this patient is super hypotensive and septic, and I want to use ketamine because it'll increase their blood pressure. And I have to remind them that not every patient is going to have an increased heart rate and blood pressure with ketamine because of those catecholamine depleted patients in the setting of sepsis or some other situation where you have a catecholamine depleted patient where resuscitation is really important before we, we give these medications and before we intubate these patients as well. Yeah, absolutely agree. One way I like to think of these agents in the emergency department is I'm always thinking about who can I not give a certain agent to just because we have limited information in the ED. So I'm quickly going through those things in my head. What am I going to need to know about the patient to try to avoid a certain agent? And I may not always get that information. And then when we do choose a specific agent, what are the things we need to be thinking about and worried about? So how are you guys deciding what you're going to use and in what scenarios are you maybe changing your standard regimen? Yeah, definitely. I think this is probably a good time to switch over to choice of paralytics. So in the emergency, in our emergency department, at least our most commonly used paralytics are succinylcholine and rocuronium. And as most of us know, succinylcholine is contraindicated in hyperkalemia. So any patients at high risk of having hyperkalemia, we can't use succinylcholine. So generally for me, those are like the end-stage renal patients that we don't have much history on and we're unsure of what their starting potassium is. And then rocuronium doesn't really have too much of a contraindication. They're pretty much safe in anybody. But the important part about rocuronium is that it has a longer duration of action, about an hour compared to succinylcholine's 10 to 15 minutes. So that comes into play a lot in patients who you do not want to have paralyzed for a longer period of time. And this can be anybody who's who you need to do neurological exams and other evaluations of the patient as well. There's also evidence that suggests that patients who receive rocuronium when compared to succinylcholine receive lower doses of sedation. They receive sedation. It takes longer to start sedation in these patients. And those are all things that we are always trying to strive to uh, avoid. We do not want our patients paralyzed and awake. And I think that's one of the main things that I strive for in these patients. Yeah. And I totally agree to that too. And as Emily said, I think with using rocuronium, you're at risk of not starting analgesia early on. And I think we've seen that in our patients here. And there's a study that was published, the awareness study that looked at patients that were paralyzed and almost 2.6% of the patients experienced awareness. So meaning that they remember being paralyzed and unable to move. And the unique thing about this study was that 70% of these patients were paralyzed with rocuronium. So pretty much proving that early administration of analgesia and sedation is very important just for the fact that the patient um, is properly sedated and will not remember that event, which can be very traumatizing for that patient. Yeah, I just want to comment on what you said there about the ED awareness study. And although that's a small percentage of patients that experienced awareness with paralysis, I think that number should be zero. And that's, yeah, that's that's kind of one of the big rules that I teach, whether I'm teaching a, a pharmacy resident, a nurse, a provider, is I tell them that paralysis without appropriate sedation and or analgesia should never happen. That's a couple movies, uh, horror movies were made with that premise. um, And we don't want to be doing that to our patients at all. So I definitely think it's a big space where the ED pharmacist can make an impact. And yeah, you're probably not going to see that on a morbidity mortality outcome. But in terms of the patient and doing what's right for them, it's very, very important. 
definitely agree. I think that's kind of another area that I'm not sure is present in other institutions, but oftentimes Spencer and I find ourselves in the CT scan with a, let's say a trauma patient or a recently intubated patient who begins moving. And oftentimes providers reach to paralytics to be able to get the rest of the CT scans before reaching to the sedation and analgesia. And I think that that is a huge role for us pharmacists to remind them that we have other agents that can prevent them from moving. That would also be probably more ethical in in administering in that situation, such as sedative and analgesic agents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We would have the same problem in our institution. And that's one of the reasons that we took Vecuronium out of our RSI box is because it's longer lasting than rock and sucks. And if we do end up losing that battle for whatever reason, at least we're not using the longest duration paralytic and we're trying to shorten that duration as, as much as possible. So yeah, it definitely comes up here as well. And to piggyback along the fact that you know, some of these patients may not be getting the appropriate sedation and analgesia that they need. I think a lot of my learners look at that and say, wow, these do these people not know what they're doing? Are they doing this on purpose? And in reality, it's probably a lot more insidious than that. It's when someone is paralyzed, it's out of sight, out of mind. If they look comfortable, they're not having any issues, so they leave them alone. So I definitely think if you're at a teaching institution where you have providers that you're educating in the ED, it's really important to show them a patient that gets a short acting paralytic like succinylcholine, who is difficult to sedate afterwards, potentially a trauma patient like you guys were describing in CT scan, and follow up and ask them what would be happening to this patient if you had given them a longer acting paralytic like rocuronium. And that's when I think the light bulb goes off and they're like, wow, I need to provide aggressive you know, post-intubation management for all of my patients. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree there. So I guess that that leads into the other, in addition to not providing adequate sedation and analgesia with rocuronium use, when succinylcholine is used in the brain injured patient, it, it allows the providers and the neurosurgeons to do, to reassess their neuro exam much sooner after the use of succinylcholine as compared to rocuronium. You know, you only have to wait about 10, 15 minutes when you intubate with succinylcholine, but you're going to have to wait about an hour with rocuronium. So I think that's another reason why if you don't have a patient that has a contraindication to succinylcholine, that succinylcholine is a great option for those patients. This is a big debate across the board, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard the phrase sucks, sucks, and rock rocks, and (laughs) everyone kind of has their own opinion here, and, you know, I'm I'm definitely not opposed to using either agent, but I, I try to educate as many people as possible, and I try to tell them if you are uncomfortable providing sedation and analgesia for a patient, you probably have no business giving rocuronium and should try to use succinylcholine as much as possible. Definitely. I think that's a, that's definitely a good point to point out to your providers. And I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions about the actual contraindications for succinylcholine. Because if you look at some of the literature, um, obviously we're always taught that burn, crush injuries and things like that is a contraindication to succinylcholine. But most of the literature suggests that it's actually safe until about 24 hours after the actual injury occurs. So I feel like that's what kind of leads to the increased use of Racuronium, especially in our, our trauma patients, um, because a lot of those come in with burn injuries or crush injuries where it's just understood that those are contraindications and to stay away from succinylcholine. Yeah. And so sometimes it's confusing. And so I can see why a lot of providers just avoid succinylcholine. It's easy. They don't have to remember any contraindications when they use rock. 
but yeah, it definitely can, you know, put a, put a patient at risk for issues uh, later on with the post-intubation management. There's, there's been quite a few questions that I've received at my institution with the dosing of the paralytics, especially when we had a, a lot more COVID patients than we do now. But it's something that always comes up, especially with our you know, more significantly obese population. So I'm curious how you guys are typically dosing your patients, especially when you don't have an actual weight and you're trying to estimate. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that that's been a topic for debate for some time now. And there's been some studies done a while back and some more recent studies that look at you know, which weight to use is specifically for rocuronium and looking at ideal body weight, actual body weight adjusted. And a lot of the um, studies concluded that using IBW have a decreased time or duration to paralysis without really changing the intubation conditions. I think that's the most important thing is you can get by with a reduced dose and not really changing the success rate or the condition for the intubation. Specifically here, the resident, the emergency medicine resident from last year did a study that looked at the weight and dosing for rocuronium. And what we do here is we have a chart actually in our RSI kit that has the IBW and the dose related to it for rocuronium right in the RSI kit. And really what that study that we looked or that she looked at last year was that we also found similar things where there's a decreased duration of paralysis and really there is no difference in success rate indicating that reduced doses or reduced weight um, using an IBW can be used for dosing of rocuronium. Yeah, and that is something that is uh, present in all of our RSI kits. So that really helps out the nursing staff as well when we're not here to be able to appropriately help the provider figure out the appropriate dose for the patients by using that chart that's right there in front of them with each medication on it and the appropriate dose based on height and then weight for succinylcholine. And then as far as the weight-based dose for rocuronium, we typically use one to 1.2 mg per keg based on ideal body weight. Yeah, we do. We do some similar stuff at our institution. I, I don't usually get into the conversation of what weight to use, but I, I completely agree using more of an ideal body weight for rocuronium is reasonable. I tend to take a more broad approach and I tend to ask you know myself and the providers, whatever agent we're using, whether it's a sedative or a paralytic, and I ask, would I rather accidentally underdose this or would I rather accidentally overdose this and what would be the implications of each? And then that kind of helps us determine if we're going to be on the heavy handed side of dosing or if we're kind of be a little bit lighter on our dosing. So that's kind of the approach that I take in a lot of situations. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. And I think, I guess in my personal thoughts, if I'm going to overdose on something or use a higher dose of something, I'm going to choose an induction agent rather than the paralytic, just due to the fact that I would rather not paralyze the patient and um, understate them with the induction dose used of either atomidate, ketamine, or propofol, whatever one you use. Yeah, and I think uh, I think you know in certain scenarios you can make the counter argument if it's someone who's you know borderline hypotensive, uh, maybe you want to give a lower dose of an induction agent, especially if they already have altered mentation or something. But I definitely think it's a very gray area. And if you're talking about doing lower doses of induction agents because you're worried about blood pressure. That's probably a scenario where you need to support this patient and resuscitate them to begin with. And so maybe you need to optimize them before you're actually intubating them as well. So yeah, definitely just making sure we're mindful of what each decision either under or overdosing might, might implicate. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with the resuscitation uh, comment that you made, Dan. I think that's a very important part of the patient's care that oftentimes goes overlooked, especially in the non-trauma patient with altered mental status or a requirement for intubation that's not hypoxia and maybe isn't as urgent of an intubation. And 
their hemodynamic status could be improved prior to intubation to avoid a cardiac arrest or even worsening hemodynamic status. It correlates a lot with the comment that you made earlier about, you know, providers potentially using ketamine in those scenarios because they think it's going to, you know, augment their blood pressure. And in reality, those patients might be at risk of further hemodynamic compromise, even with an agent like ketamine, which usually causes increases in hemodynamics. So those are the exact patients, yeah, that we're, that we're talking about here. Let's go ahead and move on to uh, the post-intubation scenarios, um, and it's really hard to talk about RSI without talking about this as well, but what does analgo sedation mean and why is it important? Yeah, so, so analgo sedation is a pain-first approach at managing sedation of a mechanically ventilated patient. Oftentimes, when we intubate patients, we and especially in a non-trauma patient, we assume that they're not in pain or they're, we're just intubating them. We're not doing any uh, painful procedures, but an endotracheal tube is very painful uh, device to have in a patient. Intubated patients can't communicate their pain, so we have to rely on their, their vital signs. And pain can result in a catecholamine release, increased sedative requirements. It has been shown to increase rates of PTSD, delirium. So these are all things that we want to avoid. And so we avoid these by giving our patients analgesia in addition to their sedation. In our recently intubated patients, it's hard to treat them with pain only first, just because they're recently intubated. If they were intubated with rocuronium, we're not completely aware of when they're awake again. So we typically, in my practice, we do a pain plus sedation approach, but never a sedation alone approach. And then and then titrate those medications to uh, vital signs or to the patient's effect. And I think it's also important to remember that although we might not think the patient has any painful things going on, we're oftentimes doing a lot of things after intubation that are very unpleasant for the patients. And so we need to make sure we're addressing those concerns and those procedures being done to the patient. For example, putting in Foley catheters, putting in central lines, moving the patient, rolling the patient, all sorts of things that can cause a lot of discomfort to these patients. So what that looks like for us is usually a fentanyl bolus, and then a fentanyl infusion started immediately after, as well as a propofol infusion in addition to that. Yeah, and I I agree with everything you said, and we're not going to be able to get into the weeds about what agent you're going to select, what the dosing will be. That's going to really depend on your specific patient. It's going to depend on your specific institution and the culture there, but certainly agree in the ED that we're usually giving an analgo sedation approach with analgesia first plus sedation almost all the time. And the way I like to think about these recently intubated patients, whether it's in the ED or the ICU, is you're starting from scratch usually with an analgo sedation approach. And to me, it's kind of like blowing up a balloon. And the hardest part is the very beginning, getting over that initial hump takes a lot of force, a lot of energy. And it's no different for these patients. They tend to require, you know, higher doses of opioids, higher doses of sedatives initially, and it can make some people uncomfortable. But once you get them over that initial hump, it's, it's a lot easier to manage them. They don't need as much dosing. You can make small changes in your infusion rates and you tend to get a pretty, pretty profound response. So I definitely just tell people, you know, give patients what they need. They're already intubated. I mean, the doses are going to vary wildly depending on your, on your patient and your scenario. Yeah. And I think that was a great point that you made with the initial being more aggressive initially up front. Obviously there's a paralytic on board, um, probably the most painful, like Emily said, procedures coming after with the fully catheter, essential lines and things like that. So I think it's really important to be more aggressive 
you know, in the first hour or two with your pain and sedation regimens. And then you can always uh, wean off as the patient responds after those initial procedures are performed. So since we're not going to be able to go through a lot of the specific examples in management and, you know, give everyone listening an algorithm to follow, uh, we should talk about some scenarios that you might encounter in the ED that are actually fairly common and how we might manage these patients under these special circumstances. So Spencer, what, what thoughts do you have on some of these special circumstances? Yeah, so I think one that we um, encounter all too frequently here is the patient that receives, you know, four, six, eight, ten of, or 10 milligrams of Narcan and require intubation upon arrival. And I think this situation can go two ways is that either the team doesn't consider or take into consideration that the patient got Narcan, or there's a thought that we need to avoid opioids because Narcan is on board. Dealing with the first situation, I think it's just important to recommend doses of sedatives and be more aggressive that you have the patient properly sedated while that Narcan wears off and not avoiding fentanyl or whatever opioid you choose to use. Um, Because eventually that Narcan is going to wear off and the fentanyl will take, fentanyl or other opioid will take control. So I think it's always important to not avoid opioids and then be more aggressive in that patient that received Narcan with your sedative agents to ensure adequate sedation. Yeah, I agree with the patients that recently got Narcan. It's it's difficult, but yeah, I, I tend to start the analgesic infusion. I'm not necessarily bolusing, although you're not going to hurt the patient by doing that, but making sure we get it on board so that when the Narcan does wear off, we're not starting from scratch and we're already building up that um, analgesia for our, our analgo sedation approach. Uh, yeah, so another uh, scenario that we come across um, frequently in the ED is um, post-intubation sedation requirements for a patient that is hypotensive. And I think it comes into question here is what sedative do you use? I think the common go-to is not using propofol and um, initiating an Iversed drip or another benzodiazepine um, to avoid further hypotension. I think this is can be thought about in different ways as well. And I think if you look at the PADAS guidelines, obviously the recommendations are to use either propofol or Presidex over on benzodiazepines as those have a higher risk of you know ICU delirium and things with long-term use. So I think it's also important to have the, a clinical discussion with a team and say, maybe we can start pressers, um, start a levofed drip, and then go with propofol once that patient's blood pressure equilibrates and becomes normal instead of going straight to the benzodiazepine infusion. Yeah, I think that is a very important point to make that not all hypotensive patients are profoundly in shock or requiring massive doses of pressors. So starting a norepinephrine drip in a patient who's hypotensive and maybe giving a small uh, Versed bolus or lorazepam bolus or another sedative bolus like that is not out of the question. And then once they stabilize their blood pressure on, let's say, norepinephrine drip, we can start the propofol and titrate to effect of their um, sedation goal. Yeah, I agree. If you if you guys have the time, um, you know, if it's not a crash intubation that you need to put the tube in right now, go ahead and getting a norepinephrine infusion started is only going to really help in those scenarios. We sometimes have the debate of push dose pressors versus norepi. And if I have the couple minutes to make norepi, I'm always going to do that. And the reason for that is, you know, there's a lot of changes that are going to happen to this patient physiologically during the intubation and after when they get put on a ventilator. And a lot of those are going to have hemodynamic effects as well. And it's just a lot easier to be dynamic with a norepinephrine infusion already running versus for me having like a push dose presser phenylephrine or like a push dose epinephrine at the bedside. I don't, I don't feel like I'm as able to be dynamic based on what the patient's going to need post intubation. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that anymore. Anytime they're asking for push dose pressers, I kind of triage the situation to see if I have time to do a levofed drip instead of push doses, just to give that more stable infusion and constant medication. Thanks, you guys, for going through those special circumstances. We're going to wrap this up soon, but I just wanted to uh, tell the listeners three rules that I try to teach at the bedside for the management of these patients that we're intubating and um, are hopefully uh, managing them appropriately afterwards with our post-intubation sedation and analgesia management. One of the rules I've already mentioned is paralysis without appropriate sedation and analgesia should be a never event that shouldn't happen. And we have seen some evidence to show that it does happen, although not as frequently, but we should try to get that number down to zero. The other rule that we've kind of mentioned a little bit here is you know, pain or lack of sedation should not be used as a presser. So if you have someone who's hypotensive or perihypotensive, we shouldn't withhold appropriate medications from an analgesic or sedation standpoint because we're worried about their blood pressure. We need to augment that. And then one that we really didn't mention, but it's a really important rule that I see um, some nurses sometimes struggle with along with providers is if your patient is awake or they're at a RAS that's too high, increasing your infusions and uptitrating those isn't really going to do a lot in the acute phase. So make sure that if your patient is at an elevated RAS level, they're going to need a bolus of something, whether that's an opioid, a sedative, it's kind of going to depend on the scenario and the culture of your institution. So that's all the time that we have today. I'd really like to thank Emily and Spencer for joining us to discuss rapid sequence intubation and management of the recently intubated patient and bringing along their expertise. Join us here at ASHP Official every Thursday, where we will be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.